Mrs. Isbister, it's going. How are you today? Not too bad. Okay. The last time I spoke, I spoke on contending for his presence. And uh, this, is, this is part two called Lies That Bind. I'll uh, preface what we're going to do by touching on um, the beginning of the last message, which gives you an idea where we're going. The Lord woke me up, uh, actually, just before I woke up. You know when you're in that state where you're almost awake? And he spoke to me. That's usually the dream place. That's mostly where I have dreams and visions, actually, is in that place just before I actually get out of bed in the morning. Those are the ones that come to me and are more clear. And the Lord, the message was called Contending for His Presence, but that's not really what happened. He had spoken and he said, the Lord said, contend for my presence. So he was... He was actually declaring or commanding and saying, contend for my presence. Now, whenever the Lord says something, it's good to listen. Because he's usually going somewhere and there's a reason for it. And so I thought of a contender. Someone then like in a boxing ring. They're a contender. And so they're in there contending to win the boxing match, aren't they? Otherwise, they're going to be laying down in a lot of pain. And so, to contend is to press in to get the thing that you're there for. A contender of the faith. Pressing in to those things the Lord is saying and contending for them until they're tangible, just like this building. I'll never forget when we first came in here and we were uh, looking at it and then we finally came in and we would purchased it Minette stood and put her hand on the building and she said my gosh I can feel the dream now I feel the vision it's taking form now it's physically here it's amazing isn't it and that's what our faith is we contend until that thing that is hoped for becomes a reality and it's there, and it's tangible, and you see it. So the Lord said, contend for my presence. And I thought, well, Lord, I do. I've been doing this for a while. What are you telling me this for, right? It's because I haven't arrived to the place he wants me to get. I'm still in the ring, and there's still somebody swinging at me. So I need to continue, continue to contend until I have the victory. Until I can touch the building, right? And say it's tangibly there. Yes, we feel his presence, but there's much more. Much more he wants to give us. Much more he wants to do. In Matthew chapter 3, verses 1 to 2, there's a few scriptures, so you may want to write them down and, and check and test them afterwards. Or if you're really fast, you can stay with me. Matthew chapter 3, 1 and 2. It says, now in those days, John the Baptist came preaching in the wilderness of Judea, saying, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. John came preaching, Repent, the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Now, I've heard prophecies a lot in the last few years saying that John the Baptist was rising up again. The spirit of John the Baptist crying out 
repent, for the kingdom of God is at hand. Now, whenever I've read that before in days gone by, I've, I've believed that it was all about repentance in the sense of getting saved, that he was speaking like as if I was downtown on top of a soapbox going, repent, repent. That's the way I seen John the Baptist. But these were Jewish believers. It's like he was inside the church preaching. Yes, it does mean coming to Christ. But there's much even greater meaning to what he was saying to the people of the day. And what would he be saying to us today? If he was here this morning, if I was John the Baptist this morning, and I said to you, repent, the kingdom of heaven is at hand. I wouldn't be telling you to get saved, unless, of course, there's a few here that need to be, need to come and know Daddy, and that he loves you. What would I be saying? Well, in the literal Greek, repent means to change your hearts, to think differently afterwards, to reconsider the way you've done things and the way you look at things. To come near or at hand, that's what it means. Thou art. Thou art at hand. For thou means no doubt, seeing. Seeing. The kingdom is the rule and the reign of Jesus. It's where he's in charge. He rules and he reigns. And the heavens is the very abode of God. It's where God is. He wasn't talking about the third, you know, million miles away somewhere through a light tunnel. It's talking about the heavens here is where God is. Have you heard the term, be heavenly minded? It's what he's talking about. The kingdom of God, the heavenlies. Jesus said, or the, or the Lord says, my ways are not your ways. They're as high as the heavens are from the earth. Think of this for the moment. Am I not made of dust? Is this not the earth right here? And is God not in a higher state of thinking? Is that what he's saying in the heavenlies? Reconsider the way you've thought about things, he's saying. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. The rule and reign of Jesus Christ, the very heavenly realm, is at hand. Later, Jesus said, it's in you. It's now. God is a genius. That's the best word I can find for him. He said to me recently when I was speaking to someone, he said, I want to bring you into my reality now. That's called the kingdom age. We've lived in a church age mentality. And now, like John the Baptist crying out, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. He's saying, it's time now for you to begin to live in my reality. That's my desire, to bring you now into the kingdom age, the kingdom of our God. We could spend a lot of time there, but you can listen to last time I spoke, or about the kingdom of God a while ago.
I want to talk this morning about seven walls of deception or lies that bind us from the reality of this. These are just some that the Lord has put in my heart that I felt to write down and share. I'm sure there's many more. You'll have ones you can think of. But I'm going to share a few this morning. One of the things that God spoke to me over time is, where is God in relationship to me? Where is he? Colossians 1.27 says, Whom God willed to make known what is the riches of the glory of this mystery among the Gentiles. Which is, this is the mystery, Christ in you, the hope of glory. Christ in you, the hope of glory. Now for me, when I became born again, I was a very insecure person. I had no basic trust as a kid. And so I had to come from that position of being like a leaf blowing in the wind. Doing drugs for 10 years, that was the best sense of rest and peace I could find, and it wasn't peaceful all the time. And the Lord came to me and he saved me from myself and revealed himself. And at that point, there was this massive gulf between us still. It's like he came and rescued me. It's like you're in this place and he comes and he rescues you. And then you feel still that you're separate from him, that he's like this huge distance away from you. You know, I used to say a million miles to the right of the Milky Way. And, you know, you get yourself in trouble and you begin to call out to him and you say, Lord, I'm in trouble down here and I need you to come and help me. And then you hope with everything in your being that he's going to come and rescue you and help you in your situation. And that goes on for a long time. Some of you still may be there. Or maybe it was just my journey. Has anybody else ever felt like that in their lives? Calling on the Lord. And then the Lord called me to preach, which was a nasty thing for him to do. Because it was my greatest weakness. Believe it or not, I hated speaking in front of people. I avoided uh, speeches as a kid. I didn't go to school that day. Because if you're insecure about yourself, then standing up in front of people that might make fun of you, not, might not like what you're saying, really matters. And so you don't do it. You avoid it at all costs. So when the Lord says, you know, I want you to do this thing. I'm calling you to speak the things that I show you and like prophetically proclaim. I said, oh, that's great. And so over the next years, it became I wanted to be obedient to him. I mean, why not? He's a great guy. He came and rescued me out of hell. Right. He came and helped me out when the devil was being a jerk, which he really is real good at. And God came and helped me out. So he was an incredible friend to me. And so I wanted to thank him for that. I was supposed to die when I was 19. God in his grace let me stay here. Oops, I gave away the numbers. 
And uh, God in his grace let me stay here. And so every day when I was 19 and one day, 19 and two days, I was so thankful. Man, I don't even belong here and I'm here. This is a good deal. It's like every day is your birthday. And so you want to be thankful to a friend that does something nice for you, don't you? So I said, okay, okay, I'll do it. I don't like it, but I'll do it. And so there I am, you know, I, you know, we had uh, just, Jubilee had just begun in those days. And uh, so John, we were at down uh, in the upper room downtown, and John Arnott would come up and put his hand on my shoulder 90% through the service and go, John, do the altar call. And I looked at him like he had three heads. I said, you're out of your mind. I'm not going, you do it, right? No, no, I think you should do it, man. No, no, I don't want to do that. So he just sort of tosses you to the lions. That's what he does. So I'd go up there and do it. Scared, you know, spitless. And I'd do it anyways. Then he began to ask me to speak on Sunday mornings. This thing I loved about John Arnott. John Arnott didn't hold on to the pulpit like it was something needed to be held on to. He believed in equipping and training. And so he's seen something. And so he pursued by pushing me out of the nest. So I would preach. I would come to preach. And my whole physical being would just go against it. My tongue would swell in my mouth. I'd feel like I need to go get sick. I just, everything. It was horrid, man. It was like walking in a windstorm to go do it. That's what I felt like. There was this massive windstorm, and I had to go through it to do this thing. And I kept saying to God, I don't get this. This isn't really nice. Why are you doing this to me, making me walk in a windstorm? You know? But I'd step into the Spirit and start to speak three minutes in, and it was the greatest place on the face of the earth. It was like, oh, man, I like you. And he'd give me things, and I'd get into it and enjoy it. It'd be over, and then I'd have to go through all that junk again the next time. So then down the road, he continues to stretch you. But I tell you all that for this. He'd come to me and he'd say, John, if you'll go do this, I'll go with you. And I'd see a vision. I'd see Jesus come and take me by the hand and say, let's go. So then I'd go to preach. Now Jesus was standing beside me, holding my hand being there with me, and I figured, man, if you'll go with me, I'll go. Again, trust issues. You've got to remember, if somebody's broken and you ask them to do something, they have to jump those hurdles. They have to walk through them. Then he began to give me the revelation that he was in me. Because I said, Lord, you know what? I would have really loved to have been born at the time you walked the earth. I feel ripped off. Here's these 12 guys that got to hang out with you. And I said, I'm born in this time, year long gone, you know. And then he told me, John, you got it way better than them. I'm in you. I couldn't be in them at that time until I left. I'm in you. When you invited me to come and dwell in your heart, I'm within you. We can't get any closer than this. And all of a sudden I realized I lived at the best time to be alive. At the time where his kingdom is advancing. 
So I went all the way, and then he began, by the way, to deliver me of those fears and heal me and give me basic trust and everything else so that you can see me standing here sharing this morning in my weakness, but his strength. It's his strength, not mine. I'm still not a speaker. He is. Believe it or not. So I want to encourage you, whatever God's asked you to do in your life, you can do it. Even though it might be your greatest weakness, because Jesus, Paul said... When I am weak, I am strong. Your weakness is your gift because it's the place where your carnality will lay down and say, I can't do this. And then Jesus says, yeah, that's what it's all about. You seeing me and letting me live through you. So the enemy will continue to keep you in a place of striving to get God to come to you to help you, to be with you, when the very fact is he's within you. He can't get any closer than he is right now. He's closer than your skin to you. Believe it or not, it's time we believe it. He's here. We don't have to get him to come here. He's here right now. In fact, we are the body of Jesus Christ. Do you know why you're seated in heavenly places in Christ right now? Is because you're one with him and he's sitting by the Father and so are you. You are Jesus Christ's body. You want to know what God did? God came down to the earth in the form of a man, Jesus Christ. And he planted that seed in order that he could enter into us and become one with us. God is taking over the earth one person at a time as the kingdom of God goes into their lives and they begin to realize that they are one with God. We need to wake up, repent, for the kingdom of God is at hand. The kingdom of heaven, it's here, now, in you. But we need to remove the lies of the enemy that blocks us from walking in the truth. I mean, Jesus really wants to lay hands on the sick and cast out devils. I think he enjoys that. He enjoyed it before. He's going to enjoy it now. But you are his hands. 1 Corinthians 3.16 says, Do you not know that you are a temple of God and that the Spirit of God dwells in you? Do we really believe that? I am a temple of the living God. Jehovah, the creator of the whole universe, created a temple to live in. It's you. And by His Spirit is within you right now. He is. He's within you right now. It's not based on your feelings. It's based on truth. Your feelings will follow the truth. If you believe, you will see. Not if you see and feel, you'll believe. That's backwards. It's here. The next thing the enemy does is he comes along and he, he puts you in a place of unworthiness. But God can't come to me because I'm unworthy. Right? Look what I did last week. There's so many people who can't believe God loves them. That God really, really, really loves them. They think, when I'm a better Christian, then God will approve of me. And he'll come to me. So they want to clean up their lives to get God to come and talk to them. See, it's only when you're holy 
that God will speak to you, right? It's only when you arrive that God will come and talk to you or use you. But the truth of the matter is, if you think about the days when you first got saved, the Lord's presence was there, and he spoke to you. And do you know why he can? Because of Jesus. Because of the work of Calvary. The work of Calvary. So either the enemy will come and say, man, you're not worthy. It's only the pure in heart that will see God. And he continues to remind you of your past and the things that you've done. When to look back at the past, except through the blood of Jesus Christ, brings you into deception. Because it doesn't exist. It's finished. It's crucified on the cross. Or either that, or you will move into a, what's called a false pride, a self-righteousness. Which is based, you know, oh, no, 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 God's not, God can't use me. Right? I'm not worthy, God can't use me. When all the time it's pride. It's just self-righteous dung. Paul called it. Isaiah 64, 6 says, And all our righteous deeds are like filthy, like a filthy garment. And all of us wither like a leaf, and all our iniquities, like the wind, take us away. That's what self-righteousness looks like. Because it's based in carnality. It's based in your abilities and your works. God doesn't like it. The reason Jesus was crucified is because it's got to go. It's got to go. See, the good side of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil is just as evil as the evil side. Maybe more so. Because it's full of blindness. It's only the tree of life that lives inside of you. Jesus himself springing forth through you. That makes all these things possible. Second Corinthians 5.21 He made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf so that we might become the very righteousness of God in Christ. We are the righteousness of God in Christ Jesus. Because Jesus became sin. Everything you ever did Everything you're doing, everything you will do, all came on Jesus Christ, the Lamb of God, in that moment on Calvary to crucify it in order that the resurrection could take place. See, the death of Christ, you realize that the cross is nothing without the resurrection. If he only have the cross, you got nothing. You too will die in your sin. But it's when Jesus, the glory of the Holy Spirit, came in that tomb and raised Jesus up from the dead and the power of God once again came inside of him. That's what the gospel's all about. That's the good news. He lives. He's not dead. He's alive. And he lives inside of you. It was the plan of God all along. Jesus Christ is a prototype. He's the firstborn of the new creation. Do you ever think about that? Dwell on that for just a moment. 
We didn't just get repaired. It wasn't a repair. Salvation. In the beginning, God created Adam and Eve. And up out of the dust came this man, and then this woman out of man. And it was a new race of people called the human race. What a wonderful, and, and it says in Genesis, and God said it is good. When Jesus Christ came out of the tomb, God created a new race, the new creation. And Jesus was the first one of many brethren, it says. He was just the, the one that led the path, embodied the truth for us. And God said, he looked and he said, it is good. So today we are part of a new creation. When you became born again, you belong to a whole different race of people than are living around you. You are a part of the new creation of God. We have yet to begin to walk into who we are. God says, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Guilt and shame, number three. I can't look at God or come close to him because I'm covered in shame and guilt. If you only knew what I've done, and we have this whole feeling of condemnation that comes upon us. I can't do that. My question, and I believe God's question to you is, is the blood of Jesus enough? Would you like to add something to it? Do you have anything to add to it? You need to settle in your mind because that's the question that Lucifer always will bring you to. What are we doing? Heaping guilt and shame and these things in our lives. We're literally saying the blood of Jesus isn't enough. It didn't do a good enough job for me. I've got to finish the task myself. And we slip on some filthy rags. We slip on a lie and a deception that keeps us out from entering into the fullness of what God's for, got for us. The blood of Christ took everything you've ever done and crucified it on the cross. It's done. If you even entertain anything else, it's a lie. And you've come into agreement with the devil. That's what you're doing. You're agreeing with him. Let's not agree with him. He's a liar, remember? Jesus said, this guy's lying to you, man. Don't listen to him. I had a dream one time, just after becoming a Christian. I don't know, at the time I thought God was trying to scare me about preaching like I told you. But I was on this, the stage in this place and uh, I was preaching Romans 6, 7, and 8. And I had a lot of revelation in the dream. I mean, I, I never really thought about it. I'd read it. nice, But all of a sudden, I had this revelation. And I was like jumping up and down on the stage. Can you believe that? It's kind of weird, eh? Anyways, I had passion. And I was so excited. And I looked out in the crowd. And the people were all sitting. They were sitting like this as I'm preaching. And they had their heads down like this. And the Lord said to me, look at them. Look at them after what I've done and what I've given them. They're looking at the ground because they're of, they cannot look at me because they're filled with guilt and shame. He said, John, go and tell them the truth and lift their heads and point their eyes that they can look at me. Guilt and shame is a lie. It's a lie. 
Romans 6, 7, and 8 is the progression Paul goes through into the freedom that God's called him to. Romans 8, 1 and 2 says, Therefore there is now zero, no, zip, condemnation for those that are in Christ. For the law of the Spirit of life in Christ Jesus set you free from the law of sin and death. You've been set free from the law of sin and death by another law, a greater law, the law of the Spirit of Christ. Laws have power. God sets laws in place like the law of gravity. If you go up on the top of this <clears throat> turret out here and jump off, I guarantee you, you cannot believe in that law of gravity. But I will see you on the asphalt below. The, the law will embrace you and bring you into its reality. The Lord came, as he can only do, and he eradicated the law of sin and death in your life by a greater law. The law that's within him, the law of life. That we could walk freely into that place of relationship with him. So again, when the enemy comes to cause you to look down, because you can't look at Abba, you've agreed with him. The Holy Spirit came to convict us of sin. If he convicts you of something, it's because he wants you to come closer to him. He wants to help you. He doesn't come to slap you upside the head. No matter whether he's wearing a religious garb and he looks like Jesus Christ, you tell that fellow to leave. He's a liar. Because God is in the reconciliation business, the redemption business, the love business, the healing business, the hope business, the father business. That's who he is. Unforgiveness and bitterness. Unforgiveness and bitterness. Usually there's thoughts like this that you, in our hearts. Do you know what they did to me? I can never forgive them. It's like Genesis 4.10, the voice of... Uh, it says, the voice of your brother's blood is crying out to me from the ground for vengeance, for, for justice. And that was the blood of Abel crying out because Cain had killed him. But then we look at this spirit of life in Luke 23, 34, Jesus saying, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they are doing. They do not know what they're doing. Matthew 6, 14 and 15. For if you forgive men their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive men their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. I figure it's a really good deal. Right? Forgiveness is a, a, a powerful weapon that God has given us. Because you know what it does? It just cuts Satan off at the knees. It's like this... In, Powerful sword. You just take them out at the knees as soon as you forgive. God forgives you. We must be forgiving. Like Jesus, do we really think people want to be that way or that hurt and broken people hurt and break people? A ball, like a snowball rolling down a hill, it continues from generation to generation. 
and the Lord is turning a corner. If Christ and even Saul, you look at Stephen when Stephen is being beaten to death. He looks out with the heart of Christ and he says, do not hold this sin against him. Because the Lord's looking and saying, this is Saul in the flesh. The religious man. But he's going to be my apostle, Paul. Forgive him. He will do great things. Not he, but he will allow me to do great things through him. He laid down everything to follow. Jesus, forgiving from the cross. If anybody had a right to have attitude, it was Jesus. And yet he could see the pain and the suffering. He could see the fruit of sin, the disease. And he knew of something far greater that could take place. He knew of a body that he could dwell, a temple. And so he endured the cross because of the great things before him. So we need to forgive or it turns to bitterness. And bitterness lots of times causes physical disease. I remember Susan's mom standing over her husband's uh, casket. Thank you, Lord. And as she was standing there over his casket, they'd been divorced for many years. She said, I wonder who's going to be next. She was. She died of cancer a very short period later. Bitterness can rise up within us from unforgiveness. And you think, like, like Abel, that you're justified in holding those things. But the result is it's killing you. You are the one that will receive the most damage from that. Not the person that did it to you, even though they will have recompense for what they did unless God, they find God's mercy. See, there's really only one enemy, isn't there? Really? And he just finds wherever he can get in to cause havoc. So if we forgive, we can shut the door, kick out the devil, right? Sixth one. Oh, wait a minute, sorry. Fifth one, pride. Hmm. This is an interesting one. Again, we could go for a long time. I'll just very briefly. It's like I'm called in serving God and in need of nothing or no one. I'm called to correct the church like Old Testament prophets have a calling of God. You know what? I have seen people like that, and they've got incredible giftedness. In other words, God comes and reveals himself, and they're prophetic. They see it, and they get saved, and they begin to walk with God, but they have zero teachability. Zero teachability. They come around, I, I bet you I've seen three or four people like that in my walk that have come near me and I've seen gifting in their lives and I've seen the, the sovereignty of the way God saved them and I knew and I had such hope of what God was going to do through them. But then all of a sudden I seen this powerful pride in them. You couldn't even tell them anything. It didn't matter that you've been walking with the Lord for a while and that you've been through the wine press. It didn't matter any of that stuff because they are like John the Baptist. They don't need anybody. 
And the worst part is they end up crashing and burning. Or they think they have this gift and calling of God to go and straighten out the Baptists, the Presbyterians, the Catholics, whatever. They have the gall to think that they're going to go in when they just became a Christian and straighten out a denomination. It's a sad story. But that's what pride does. It blinds. It blinds you. We need accountability. That's our protection with one another. Remember, there's none great but God. They even said to Jesus, Jesus, you're good. Jesus said, there's none good but God. Speaking as a man. You're not going to find goodness in, in flesh. So pride blinds. The greatest thing we see is Lucifer himself. I can't even begin to imagine what it was like to be in the courts of Jehovah, to be loved and adored by God the Father, to see and be in this place of unimaginable love and the glory, to see God creating and the things he was doing and where nothing was impossible. And to have pride rise up like stupidity and all of a sudden think you, a created being, were going to raise yourself up against an uncreated, infinite God. And talk a third of them to go with you. Sounds like church split, doesn't it? This was the first church split. It was in heaven. A third of the angels who don't even like each other now Right? They don't, they don't get along, by the way. They hate one another. Right? When you're doing deliverance, lots of times they'll sacrifice somebody else smaller. You, you get in the light there. You leave, maybe they won't see me. They don't care. There's no love there. They live in, a, in an atmosphere of fear. I wouldn't like that. Blindness. Pride brought them into blindness where they believed something that was so ridiculous and followed it through. And it comes in every single one of us. And we have a choice what to do with it. There's only one good, and that's God. Matthew 23, 12 says, Whoever exalts himself, God will humble Whoever humbles himself, God will exalt him and lift him up. Blindness will separate us from the Father. Humility, that's only knowing things for the truth, for what they really are. God will exalt because God can move through that place because you're not in a place of stupidity. Right? You're not in a place of absolute ridiculousness. Right? Number six. Image of God. This is, for me, probably was the most powerful thing in my life. Every one of these I've dealt with, I deal with. But as I put them under my feet and walk in greater, greater senses of freedom, I walk in greater, greater revelations of his presence. I'm getting the lies out of the way, and I'm jumping into the truth, and I'm enjoying Daddy more and more every day, and I know that the ocean's incredibly deep, and I'm only into my feet, my ankles. And it feels wonderful. 
I want to go over my head in this. Liquid love, they call it. It's where the love of God begins to pour into this room so thick that we're all on the floor because you can't move. We're stuck there like glue. And all you feel is this rich warmness running through your body and the still small voice saying, you are my daughter, you are my son. Fear nothing, for I am for you, not against you. I can do anything. What do you want to do today? Where you feel like you're going to melt. And I say that because I've experienced it. That's why I got ruined. When he came to me and revealed himself, he revealed the liquid love of God. And he ruined me. It's like, once you taste that, you can't settle for a buzz doesn't cut it anymore. And everybody that you get around, you wreck them now too. So I'm here to wreck you for something better. See, we've created God in our image. See, we were created in God's image, but we made God a man. It's tragically inadequate, right? We made God uh, a God that we can use and control. A heavenly butler, if you will, right? Hey, by the way, if you're not doing nothing, a beamer would be really nice. You know what I mean? Hey, God, <laughs> what's happening? I could really use you to do this today. You know? Hey, God, I can probably find a few things you said in here to get you to do something. <laughs> Maybe. You think I'm kidding? God's got news. He's God. And you're not. See, the problem is we've become not God-centered, but we've become needs-centered, success-centered, wholeness-centered, even to be whole. That's our focus, right? Navel-gazers. Spiritual gifts are even to be a byproduct, not the focus. Don't focus on being prophetic. Don't focus on being able to have a gift of healing. Don't fo make that your focus. Make love the, of the Father your focus. These are just byproducts. They're just going to happen. You know, when Jesus shows up, what, what happens? All kinds of really cool things happen just because he shows up. It's not about you. It's about him. It's your buddy. Let him show up. Or let's say it this way. Let him come out. Let him out of the box. You got him trapped in there. Let's kick out the, the lies and the walls out of the way and let God free. So that he once again wants to walk on the face of the earth in his body and do really cool things. Oh, yeah, greater things will you do, Jesus said, because I'll be there, right? I'll be with the Father and in you. I'm paraphrasing. Our emotional, spiritual, and physical blessings are an overflow from God-centered lives, not the fountainhead. And Satan goes to great length to distort our concept of God, so we'll serve his interests. Did you know that you will eventually be shaped by the image of God you carry in your mind? In fact, the truth be known, they're idols. Anything, it's like... If I sent you a picture of me, if somebody took a photograph of me, but it didn't, it didn't really look like me and it wasn't like me at all, it wouldn't be me, would it? So when we serve anything but truth, 
of who he is. It's not really him. It's an image. We think that those graven images that they bowed their knees to in, the, in history gone by, we would never do that. And yet there are lots of images that we bow our knee to that are false Christs. Idols. It's idol worship. Idolatry. We don't know about it. That's the beauty of the lie the enemy's done, right? As long as you don't know, yet you can still be bound by that spirit. So God wants to reveal the truth of who he is. How do we know that it's not true? Because we're not there yet. When we're there and we see him, when I say I'm there, I don't mean dead. I mean when you have a revelation and you're walking in it, and you know, like Peter, you're walking down the street and the sick are getting healed just because God's there, and these things are taking place, you know then that you got your eyes fixed on the right dude. Until that point, all we're doing is seeing shades. Like It's like God needs to come and begin to take away the layers. In Revelations, he says that, doesn't he? He says, come, purchase oil from me, that he may anoint our eyes and take the scales away, and we would see him for who he really is. That's what he wants, to remove false images that the enemy has put in our, our minds, and we serve them all of our lives. Unless we get real and honest and say, hey, God, man, it's not working. I don't think the problem's on your end for some reason. It must be on mine. So we need to talk about this because I don't like it anymore. In fact, church without you sucks. It's more than sucks. It's more than black. It's an empty hole that's sucking me down. I preferred sin to that. That sounds pretty bad, doesn't it? But at least sin falsely gave me some kind of support system. It was crap, but, oops, there it was. It was done. But it's like, you know what I mean? It gives you a false sense of reality. So it gives you little Band-Aid shots every once in a while. If it didn't, you wouldn't do it, would it? I mean, if, you, if, it, if it didn't, you would never go near it. It's got to taste good, at least in your mouth, and then rots your stomach once it gets in there. But religion it's like the absence of life. It's not just empty, it's the absence of it. So it's like a, a black void inside of you. And you're just like continuing to try to fill it. And then you get stuck in a rut doing it. And then 20, 50, 100 years or whatever you live years later, you go, why did I do that? What was that all about? So the Lord t told me one day, the best way out of this is be real. Just stop and go, hey, take inventory. And once you start taking inventory, everything begins to change because you're honest. You just get honest before God. You don't have to give him religious prayers. He knows you anyways, man. He sees you in the shower. Right? He sees you in the bathroom. He knows all about you. So it don't matter how you dress it up. Right? He doesn't care about how you dress it up. Holy Heavenly Father! We're here today because you're holy. Hey, Dad, how's it going? Like, man, look at this. Sucks without you. Could you tell me what I'm doing that's making this suck? So we can sort of get together today because I don't like it. So you're finding me a little bit strange now when I, at the beginning of services because that's what's happening. I'm just stopping and saying, you know what? I'm not into suck. 
I'm into finding him. I want to hang out with God, right? Where you are, I want to go. Hebrews 13.8, God is the same yesterday, today, and forever. Our image of God seems to adjust, did you notice, to your circumstances. It adjusts to your circumstances. When you're having a good day and he's giving you the beamer, you like him. But when your liver's not working and something's not functioning, he's not such a nice guy, right? Not saying that you did that. But I'm saying that when we're in a place of need or a problem, we blame him. But God doesn't change. Remember? He's good always. He's a nice guy every day. He really is. So the circumstances, don't let them rob you. The enemy will come and lie to you so he can rob you. You get to worship him in the midst of a situation. Somebody said this this morning, I think. This aroma goes before the Lord. You can't give that aroma of worship and incense in the midst of your enemies. In the midst of the enemy, when he's standing there and he goes, oh, I got him now, man, he's he's not going to like this situation. He's going to really get angry with God. And then he just fuels it. But when you, in the middle of that situation, realize that God's not the situation, God doesn't change, he's an anchor, a fortress, and you begin to worship God. Lord, you are good today, Father. I worship you. I thank you because you never change. You are my hope in this situation. As you do that, you literally take the tools the enemy's got and rip them out of his hands. And he's got to go. He's got nothing left. He's finished. And in the midst of that situation, you get to put this fragrance of worship up to God that can't be got in any other place. That fragrance... It's like no other fragrance before the Lord. It's the revelation of God's personality, knowing how he views us in Christ, that will strengthen our inner man and demolish Satan's strongholds. Christianity must become God-centered, and we need to return to the majesty and love of the Father. See, renewal was about the revelation of God as a Father who loves us. It was just the kickoff point. It's like the beginning of the football game. They kicked the ball. That's just the beginning. Like he looks at down through history, he looks at us in this place and goes, man, we've got to do something. Right? So we need to wake them up once again. So it's a new game. It's a new game. We're coming into the Father's hearts, and great things are unfolding in front of us. Colossians 3.10 says, Having put on the new self, a new self, oh, that's the new creation, who is being renewed to a true knowledge, a true revelation, according to what? The image of the one who created you. The real image, who he is. That's the transformation that's going on in the midst of us. How are we doing for time? Or I'll skip the seventh one. Hey? 20 minutes? Everybody comfortable? You want me to carry on, number seven? Okay. Bad theology of timing. This is another really tricky deception of the enemy. When it's God's time, we will arrive so he can use us. 
We're waiting on the Lord to move, maybe tomorrow, next week, next month, next year. Do you ever think that maybe God's waiting on us? There's a whole different way of thinking about it. Instead of us waiting on the Lord, now I'm not saying there aren't times that does, God doesn't call us. That's called patience. Right? There isn't times that God doesn't call us to wait upon him. But we have all these theologies to explain why we're in a hole. It's like the enemy puts us in the void and then gives us theology to live there. Yo, it's because of this, you know. And we create these great theologies, we preach them, and they spread like a fire through the body of Christ. And then the whole church lives there for as many years as the enemy can keep you bound. Bad theology. I really think that when Jesus was crucified and he rose from the tomb and walked out of there, I think when he was said it's finished, he meant it's finished. I think when it, uh, you know, the, the whole thing exploded at that point and people were coming out of the graves just because life was being released now into them, the dead were being raised all over the place at that time. I think it meant that the new day had started, new creation. And so, we, 2,000 years later, are still waiting for something to come out of the tomb. It's already here. It's already here. I am that I am, he says. We say, when I'm perfected in him, he will use me. Now, I agree, there are requirements to leadership. It says not to put new believers in a place of leadership. You would destroy them. It's not all fun and games. Sometimes you have to put up with certain things and deal with things. God calls you into account for things. He calls you into account for every word that comes out of your mouth. So there's reasons. But... To wait because you're not yet ready, because you're not perfected yet, to share the love of God with people or experience the fullness of Jesus Christ is a lie. Jesus removed the obstacles. You can. He says, taste and see that the Lord is good. I mean, God came to me when I first became a Christian. I was still doing LSD. We used to hang out together may shock you. He would come, his presence would come into the bedroom, and it would be strong. I'd be on acid reading the Bible. And we'd have discussions, and he never really talked about the acid. Funny guy. We would. But he took me where I was, moved powerfully, revealed himself, and then began to give me a uh, there was a sense in me that was going, I want this. And what is this? And then I began to ask him. And he began to give me dreams and reveal what the drugs were and what was going on. He put the passion in me, and it was me that came to him and said, Lord, I don't want to do this anymore. I want more of you. And it happened. And I was freed. He set me free. You see, God has a whole other way. He's moving on the lost right now. Did you know that? He's out there. He's speaking to them through the TV. 
through movies. He's speaking them through them to them through songs that you would not agree with. He's speaking to them through situations. He's calling all that will listen. Come unto me. Be born again. And there are individuals having visions, Muslims and different people on the earth that are having visions of Jesus Christ and becoming born again without the help of the church. Sovereign intervention. Redeemed from the darkness they've been in in a moment when they see him and begin to follow him. The Lord is on the move and touching people because he can. Because he paid the price to do it. See, he died from all humanity, not just the righteous or so-called think they are righteous. See, I'm no better or different than anyone else that doesn't even know Jesus yet. The only difference between me and them, there is no us and them, by the way. The only difference is that I have received the mercy and the goodness of God. And I know it. And now I'm to love others. They're just not in the door yet, aren't they? I was once not in the door. That's all that is. They just haven't tasted yet the goodness of God. They haven't found out he's a nice guy. Let's look at the disciples for a second, just to give you an idea. Luke twenty-two twenty-four. Though There arose also among them a dispute as to which one of them was regarded to be the greatest. So they're walking along having this debate. I, you know, am I greater than you or are you greater than me? Now, they're doing signs and wonders at this point, by the way. Still sound a little carnal, too, don't they? Right? What do you think, Brian? Am I better than you or are you better than me? What do you think? You think Jesus loves you more or you think he loves me more? Yeah. <laughs> I think he kind of likes us the same. Or if not, he loves you more. You're right. Here's the debate. How could he? We're the same body. Do you think he, I like this finger more than this finger? Or do you think I like them the same? Here they are having this debate, and yet Jesus uses them powerfully. He said, and then he's talking. Uh, Peter says, Lord, with you I'm ready to go both to prison and to death. This Pride rises up. I'll do anything, man, for you. Right? He's a zealot. And Jesus says to him, Peter, the rooster will crow today until you have denied three times that you even know me. He looks right in at his weakness. Right? Now, if God can use unlearned fishermen with problems like us, and they seem to do the stuff. That's what the vineyard used to call it, the doing the stuff. You know, they, they prayed for the sick. They got the sick got healed. Even Judas did, by the way. They cast out demons, and the demons left, and they come back all ecstatic about it. Hey, man, you will not believe it, Jesus. We had a good day, man. We were over here, and we were casting demons out, and they were leaving, and oh, my gosh, just like you do. We, we were doing it, and it was happening. You know, you see, but they weren't perfect. They weren't perfect, but the grace of God was on their lives. It's on your life. 
God can use you. He used me and uses me, and I am not perfect. I have not arrived. And yet he still uses me. Because I am weak, and he is strong. Because I am his canvas, and he's still painting. Don't look at the painting before it's finished. He's still painting. But he who began a good work in you, he will perfect it. That's his job. Holy Spirit, I believe in you. I know. He's going to do good work. He's a great artist. John chapter 14, verses 8. Philip said to Jesus, Lord, can you show us the Father? It's not enough for us. Sounds like a hungry guy, doesn't it? Passionate and hungry. He's been hanging out with Jesus and all of a sudden Jesus isn't enough because he's hearing Jesus talk about Abba. And he goes, man, you know what? It's not enough for me anymore. You've got to show us the Father. Jesus turns and says to him, man, have I been with you so long and yet you have not come to know me, Philip? Now at this point, I'm sure Philip's head's spinning around because he's thinking, you know, did you not hear me? Are you losing it? Jesus says, he who has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? Do you not believe that I am in the Father and the Father is in me? And the words that I say to you, I do not speak on my own initiative, but the Father abiding in me does his work. Believe me that I am in the Father and the Father is in me. And if you can't believe this, at least believe upon the works themselves. If you can't quite get there yet, Philip, just look at the works that are going on, hold on to that for a bit, and we'll work you towards it. In 16, he says, I will ask the Father, and he will give you a helper, that he may be with you forever. That is the spirit of truth whom the world cannot receive because it does not see him or know him. But you know him because he abides with you and will be in you. After a while, while the world will no longer see me, but you will see me because I live, you will live also. In that day, what day, Jesus? The day I've rose from the dead. You will know that I am in the Father, and you in me, and I in you. Let me read that last line again. In that day you will know that I am in the Father, and you are in me, and I am in you. So as Jesus said, I am in the Father, and the Father is in me, and we are one. I too, John Brown, can say, I am in Jesus Christ, and Jesus Christ is in me, and we are one. You can't separate us now. Now, I could even go to the extent that says this. When you have seen me, you have seen Jesus. He's looking at you right now. You may need to chew on that for a while. Because you too can stand up here and say the same thing. The words of Christ just said it. I am seated by the Father right now. In Christ. To understand where you are and where you're to be, it's this. My position in Christ is my possession. My possession 
in Christ is my position. So to the point you possess the land, what God has given for you, what's here now, will be your position. But God has called you to live in what he just said. To live, in that day you will know, I am in the Father, and you in me, and I in you. This is the geniusness of God the Father. Can you imagine if the lights went on right now and we really, 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 really got this? Look what happened with 12 disciples that were a little screwed up and a little messed up. They really didn't like uh, Matt when he came, did they? Because he had been a tax collector. So they had issues with him. They all had little issues. But what if we got it? Even like they got it in their messed up condition. See, the reason God did that? Because if he chose people like Paul, the whole group of them, we'd never get the truth. Because we'd sit there trying to be like Saul the rest of our lives. So he chooses people like you so that you can understand, that you can apprehend that which is trying to apprehend you. The truth is trying to apprehend you. If we could catch hold of this, the nation of Canada would be changed in a week, in an hour. Because somebody would, somebody would go and empty Stratford General, and that would definitely probably get news. I know that most news is not good news. But if the whole hospital was empty, at least somebody might be mad about it. So it would get in the paper, maybe even on the news. And eventually the ball would start rolling. And down the hill it would come. Do you see all these things the enemy has put in place to keep us from apprehending what Jesus did on the cross by giving us the very relationship he brought us into the Trinity? You want to know why the devil doesn't like you? There it is. Because you are one with the Creator. And when he looks at you, who do you think he sees? He doesn't like it. Romans 8, 38 and 39. I'm almost finished. For I am convinced that neither death nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, or any other created thing will be able to separate you, you or me, from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus, your Lord. So Paul seen a need, or I should say the Holy Spirit seen a need to tug on Paul and have him write that down for you and me. So that we would see that all these things can't separate you from going into daddy's heart. The things that can separate you are the lies of the enemy when you come into agreement with him, that's what you do, you come into agreement with him, and he's a legalist, and then he puts you in a box with that nice little theology to keep you there to death if possible. Because he knows. He had to contend with Jesus. You think he really wants to contend with like a million of them at once? He doesn't. So he spends all of his time 
making a little box for you. And the little box will be unworthiness, shame, guilt, unforgiveness, theology of time, one day, image of the Father. That's why they were having a revival, a move, Father, heart of God. We need it. So we can get on track with the image. Anything that separates you or me from the Lord or his ability to be one with you is from an antichrist spirit. It's a tactic of the enemy to stop the kingdom of God from producing fruit and the kingdom of darkness, that's the kingdom of this world, from being put under Jesus' foot. Did you know that this world system, the devil is in charge of? It's his. In any way we enter in and out and through it, we are in his kingdom. And all of us in the room are involved in the kingdom of darkness because we're still there. We still do things that we do not know about yet. We are only accountable to walk in the light we've been given. But I believe that what's coming upon us is a revolution. Jesus Christ is going to bring a revolution to the church. And it's not going to be new wine in old wineskins. Or, I mean, yeah, in old wineskins. It's going to be a new wineskin. And that new wineskin is, come over here. Step out of the system and follow me. I'm going to go and cause a revolution. I'm going to cause you to think and do things like you've never done before. And you're going to go against things that you've lived in your whole life, even as, quote-unquote, a born-again Christian. Because you didn't know. And God's going to say, I have nothing to do with that. I have nothing to do with that system. The church of Jesus Christ is not a corporation. Never has been, never will be. It is not run by the wisdom of men. And the, the church as a whole, and we've known, has been run by the wisdom of men. And it's been run like a great corporation. We could bring the CEO from Bell Canada and have him pastor the church as an administrator, and things would go well. But it would be not the Spirit of God. And God has allowed it for a time so that we would get sick up and fed with it. And then he's going to go, have you had enough yet? There's your way and my way. Come, follow me. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Psalm 41, 12 and 13 says, And you set me in your presence, O God, forever. Blessed be the Lord, the God of Israel, from everlasting to everlasting. Amen. You have set me in your presence, David said, forever. Jesus said, Contend for my presence. Don't accept anything less. Don't accept shadows. Don't accept anything. Contend for me alone. It may cost you. No, it will cost you. But there's nothing greater than him who loves you, gave his life for you, lives in you, and now wants to live through you. Control in the water like Sue's seen, that is one of the things that he has to get rid of in our lives. 
because we have security in, in the control of our flesh. We don't know that he holds all things together, the universe in the palm of his hand. I think he can take care of you. I think he can get a ticket or pay the way for Patty to go to Singing Waters. God's presence is God in the present. Let's stand. God's presence is God in the present.